This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. This is case number two from the Blue Cliff Record. Chow chose the great way is without difficulty. Except for this goddamn fly. <laughs> In any case, the main case. Chow Cho, teaching the assembly, said the great way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. As soon as words are spoken, this is picking and choosing. This is clarity. This old fellow does not abide within clarity. Do you still hang on to anything or not? At this time, a certain student asked, since you don't abide within clarity, what do you hang on to? Chacha replied, I don't know either. The student said, since you don't know, teacher, why do you nevertheless say that you do not abide within clarity? Chacha said, it's enough to ask about the matter. Bow would withdraw. So yesterday I gave a talk on another koan from the Blue Cliff Record, also concerning Chow Chow, Joshu of Mu fame. And um, I noted that the koans in the Blue Cliff Record, there are 100 koans, they're done after the Moomin Khan. Uh, so after the koan student has passed Mu and the preliminary koans, uh, and deepen their understanding of Mu, through the preliminary koans. Um, they work with the Mumankan, which is subtle, um, seemingly simple, but not. Um, and um, then they work on the Blue Cliff record, which are technically Rinzai koans. Um, and they usually involve, uh, often involve, um, a dialogue between a uh, monastic student um, and a master, and sometimes two masters, sometimes even two students. And it goes back and forth. Um, and, you know, there's another element of depth to it, because you have to work within the words now a bit, um, much more than in previous koans. So you have to be clear in order to see. Uh, and each koan is, is a test uh, and a challenge and an invitation um, to see into your understanding. And koans can be explained, and, um, and in a way, a talk on a koan is somewhat like that. Um, and sometimes it, they can be understood intellectually. But um, when a student actually works with koans, none of that will help them uh, any more than you can understand mu uh, intellectually. And in the Dyson Room, you have to be able to make it live and personal and intimate. And um, that aside, um, the koans also are pointing at something that is vivid, can be vivid and alive in your own life, uh, which is the really important aspect of the koan that it's not about seeing something that comes out of wisdom and compassion, but that it, it actually is in your life. Um, so this particular koan, uh, it's a wonderful koan about how we usually almost inevitably attach to our thought stream. Uh, it's subtle. It's easy to miss. Uh, and yet it points directly to you, to your own being, to your own practice to your own mind, especially to our minds. When we sink into our zazen, it almost becomes obvious that we grab onto what we think and attach. I mean, we can, after a while, see that process. We can see a thought come up and we get on that horse and gallop away with it. Um, and, um, and not just attach, but, you know, really attach, really stick to it, right? Um, 
And um, it's familiar because that's very familiar territory. That's usually often the way our mind is, um, that we're living on that landscape of um, these stream of thoughts that we're living out of. And so we take that as our experience of life. Um, and, you know, the question to always ask ourselves is, is that true? Is what we're thinking and therefore um, speaking or not speaking, either one works, acting uh, and preserving by having that thought yet again, preserving that model of that thought and where it leads and where it comes from. Uh, is that actually true? Is it actually fundamentally real? Is it a bedtime story? Is it something in between? Does it have a provisional truth? Yeah, but. But even though it's yeah, but, I'm going to ride that horse as long. I keep talking about riding horses because I'm a little bit involved with uh, Yukon's nephew, and you may, you may know him. He's a uh, performance artist, and he goes around the country performing in people's homes. And um, he decided he wanted to learn to ride horses, which he's been doing for the past many months as a greenhorn. Uh, Jewish boys allowed on horses? I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, and, and to do this long extended trip through many states in the, in the West and stopping at homes and doing what he does, which is to entertain, make up songs. He's very, very talented, comes from an immensely talented family. Um, so I've been following his blog and interacting with him a bit. And it's, so I keep coming up with horse metaphors. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do is to learn to ride two horses across open country when you know nothing about horses. It takes a lot. Anyway, uh, so I was speaking of how in Zazen it becomes obvious that we attach and we ride that horse. Um, and the attachment sticks like invisible glue. We don't see the attachment. We just see the thought. Um, the thought is the attachment, actually. And I, I say it's invisible just because we don't see it. So, um, and we do this all day long. I mean, think about how we glom onto a thought stream and so often get lost in this river of thoughts, so often. In the midst of this, nothing else is visible. When we're caught up in these thoughts, nothing else is visible. And even when someone holds up a mirror that we can look into, we still don't realize we're speaking from the same flowing current, from the same stream, river. Sometimes even as we say we're not, you know, it's the but, I'm not judging that person, but they are da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Has anyone here ever had that thought? Um, so we're pretty firmly seated in our view, and it's a comfortable armchair. I mean, we know it. Um, So the koan is not instructing you to not have a view or having one to never let it go, but it inquires, what, is a, what does our view rest on? And I think it's safe to say it rests on our constructed sense of ourself, me, mine, knowledge, confidence, lack of confidence, Position, privilege, my emotion, my emotional greediness, that's a tender one, our emotional greediness, our, our need to honor our emotions to the extent that they um, become this valuable treasure. Uh, what's beneath the emotions? And I'm not saying don't feel, don't have emotions, they're crucial. Uh, they tell us a lot about ourselves in the situation we're in or facing. But we don't have to always believe them. 
including the information they're giving us. I mean, the real information emotions give us is really about ourself, not about others. So the challenge here is, can we enter this cone, any cone, but this cone, and see into it and not attach to what it brings up? To see it, to see it as clearly as we can, or to question it, and whatever's seen, let go of. Part of the introduction uh, points to what the koan heralds. Uh, I'm leaving part out, but it says, even the Buddhas of the three worlds can only nod to themselves, and the ancestors of all ages do not exhaustively demonstrate its profundity. The whole treasury of sutras is inadequate in expounding its entirety. Even the clearest eye practitioners fail to save themselves. Why is that? Why does even the clearest eye practitioner fail to save themselves? That's a a worthwhile question. Is there something outside of them that will save themselves? Or something inside of them that will save themselves? How do they get saved? How do you get saved from your delusions and your pain and your suffering? And whatever it is that saves you, what is that? How small is that? How big is that? Where does it reside? What's included? And what's excluded? Will Jesus save you? Will Buddha save you? Will your practice save you? By the way, you may not be aware of it, there's a block party going on outside. So at this point, the point is even the clearest eye practitioners fail to save themselves. At this point, how do you conduct yourself? Well, here's a hint. Mentioning the name of the Buddhas is like trudging through the the mire. To utter the word Zen is to cover your face with shame. Not only those who have long practiced Zen, but beginners too should exert themselves to attain directly to the secret. Ah, the secret. Of course, the secret is, there is no secret. Anyone can see and directly attain. Anybody. It has nothing to do with intelligence. There's a couple of famous masters who were not considered particularly intelligent. Interesting. I mean, that isn't out there as public knowledge, but um, when you do koans with number of koans with different masters, you, uh, the koans involve the masters, you, you get a sense of their personality and the history and the uh, dialogues they, they had, because you study their, their life to, to get, so you can place yourself in that koan, in that time and place, and be that. Be that master, be that response, um, just as in this koan. And you get some sense of things sometimes, plus what history may have to say for whatever that's worth. So anyone can see and directly attain. Always who we are and what is before us does not fall into one or two. I could stop here, but I won't. There, this is the second koan of the Blue Cliff Record. The words picking and choosing, or variations of this, appear later on in other koans, all involving Chow Chow. It was his teaching. It's one of the ways he, he taught. So, uh, allowing for slight differences in the wording. A practitioner asked Chow Chow, the ultimate path has no difficulties. Just avoid picking and choosing. Because that was how he taught. He used that phrase. Uh, What is not picking and choosing? Good question. What isn't picking and choosing? Chow Chow says, under heaven and earth, I alone am the honored one. That, of course, is a quote of the Buddha on his awakening. 
often put forth by the Christian minister, ministry, missionaries who first encountered that as completely egotistical, which could not be further from the truth. Let me go back, because it's not the whole thing. So a, a practitioner asked Chow Chow, the ultimate path has no difficulties, just avoid picking and choosing. What is not picking and choosing? Chow Chow said, under heaven and earth, I alone am the honored one. The, the practitioner said, this is still picking and choosing. Chow Chow said, stupid oaf, where's the picking and choosing? And the practitioner was speechless. And that cone always stuck in my mind because Daito Roshi used the translation, you asshole, where is the picking and choosing? <laughs> so it's one of my favorite koans, of course. <laughs> the practitioner asked Chow Chow, the ultimate path has no difficulties, just avoid picking and choosing. Isn't this a cliche for people of these times? And I sometimes struggle with that, giving talk after talk, of not falling into cliche language. Um, not using the same phrases all over and over, although the phrases, you know, what makes them a cliche and what makes them alive? Um, but I, I give that some thought. Um, so has no difficulties, just avoid picking and choosing. Isn't this a cliche for people of these times? And Chatrush said, once somebody asked me that, and I really couldn't explain for five years. Well, why couldn't he explain in five years is... It could have been 20 years or 100 years or really couldn't explain. I just... But there's another implication of why five years, which has to do with the practitioner. A practitioner asked Chow Chow, the ultimate way has no difficulties, just avoid picking and choosing. As soon as there are words and speech, this is picking and choosing. So how do you help people, teacher? Chow Chow said, why don't you quote the saying in full? The practitioner said, I'm only quoting up to here. Tetra said, it's like this. The ultimate way has no difficulties. Just avoid picking and choosing. Hmm. Maybe I should give a talk on that. So these, the, the great way is not difficult is from the Faith Mind poem. And that's by Xing Tiang. Uh, faith and Mind, Faith and Heart Mind. It's a very famous poem. It's too long to quote the whole thing here. But it's an essential part of Zen practice. Um, one of the... Uh, places that I practiced at for many years, chanted it every day, every session, uh, the whole thing. So you learn it by, by doing that. It's also something we use with students uh, who take, up, take it up line by line sometimes and investigate it, not directly as a koan, but within their life, within their understanding, and um, bring forth what they see about this. So I'll just quote a little of it to give you a sense of it. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. There's a particular translation that I'm most familiar with. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the slightest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. And there's a lot more. And it takes you on a journey of your mind. Faith in mind Mind, heart, faith in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, faith in yourself. So 
uh, Seng Xian is the third Zen patriarch, about six, 600 AD, third ancestor after Bodhidharma. Daido Roshi, as a student, really, I mean, he got into Zen, essentially, among other ways, through this poem, and he became very interested in it and studied it and um, really devoted his effort to it. And Daido means great way. That was the name given to him by Maizumi Roshi. So, kind of coming back to the topic at hand and to this ango, coming ango. There's a reason for our suffering. And if you want to reduce it to the simplicity of clear-eyed reality, it's simply that we attach. And we stick to what we know or what we refuse to know or the infinitely subtle ways we go alive, go about life, smearing ourself all over the canvas in order to get what we want, avoid what we don't want, avoid what we don't want to think about, not face ourselves. Or just live in a manner that will not even deal with the subtle awareness of our existence, which I think is how most people live. And I'll bet all of us are familiar with not dealing, but I don't want to deal with that. There's a reason we stress Zazen as the primary, not the only practice, but the essential aspect of practice. If you sit, you'll soon discover that if you hang on to your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your stories, you not only can't let them go, but you perpetuate them. And you, what, What's valuable about that, doesn't mean much when I say this, but what's valuable about that is when you yourself discover that through your zazen. And for each, each person's journey is different. Um, <laughs> I, just, I'm not bragging. <laughs> But I have to note that the first time I sat down to do Zazen, which was self-taught, I was reading out of the three pillars of, of Zen, I noted my story, and I noted how that was a complete failure, my story. It wasn't getting me what I wanted. And that didn't mean I was looking for another way to get what I wanted. I realized that no matter what I wanted, it wasn't going to make me happy, that something more was required from me from understanding of my own mind. And so I often feel like the happy idiot because I like, skipped a hundred steps in the practices I was in. I, you know, oh, of course, I can't charge forward, which I'd been doing my whole life. I'm really good at charging forward. And that energy is in me, is who this person is. Um, I can't charge forward and just grab it and get what I want. I mean, I could. In fact, I was accomplished at that, but it just made me unhappy, continually unhappy, sometimes in the name of happiness or satisfaction at least. But we have to get to that point where we're willing in seeing our thoughts and stories that they no longer sustain us. It's not a yes or no thing. It's a practice, of course but they, they just don't do it anymore. It's, it's not going to hold us. We want something more for ourselves, from ourselves. And, you know, this is not a set point of practice, and yet that has to happen. And how it has to happen for each person is different. And the implications of when that happens and how that happens and how it's understood is different for each person. But in some way, that has to happen.
we can begin to see how all that our mind produces has no ongoing existence and maybe not even an ongoing value. We're making up the stories of me as our mind kind of clunks along. And the stories seem completely validated. I mean, that's our reference system. They make complete sense. And yet we're not satisfied. And maybe we're downright unhappy. Are those two things connected? It's worth asking. It's a great gift, not just to begin to experience how our mind creates and holds on to our stories and perpetuates them, but in choosing with awareness to let the thought go, the story go, we begin to encounter emptiness. Simply by seeing that whatever we think, imagine, conjure up, feel, has no substantiality. Now, as we do this, the, the word emptiness is of no value. We're not, I mean, there is no such thing as emptiness. It's not a thing. So the vocabulary and the language kind of reaches its endpoint of explanation. And yet the experience of seeing your story, letting it go. I mean, how many times have we been in Zazen and completely wrapped up in our story? And then, oh, I see that this is my story. And we let it go. What happened to that story? It was so vital and important a moment ago. So alive, so, so rich in feeling, aggression, delusion, um, daydreams, some level of satisfaction, because it's giving us something or we wouldn't be doing it, even if it's what we're giving is in some way negative, we take our nourishment from that. We try, anyway. So it's a great gift to begin to encounter that when we let it go, it's not there. In fact, it was never there except as a concoction. And so, if we persist, now with some awareness of our power to constantly recreate our habitual thought patterns, we're now aware of that. We can begin to get a glimpse of how that leads to our unhappiness, our stuckness, our attachments. I'm using all these words to try and describe something, none of which reaches it. Our patterns of being that are so firmly cemented in. So in this way, we're studying ourselves. We're learning about who we are and who we are not. It can be astonishing. And I just said this, but I'll say it again. To, to see how we can be possessed by a thought stream and identify with it. Be consumed by it. And if we let it go, it's gone. So Chow Cho, teaching the assembly, said, the great way is not difficult, just avoid picking and choosing. As soon as words are spoken, this is picking and choosing. This is clarity. Picking and choosing. Here, clarity here. You're setting up a duality. This old fellow does not abide within clarity. Do you still hang on to anything or not? So do you? What do you hang on to? We're all hanging out someplace. What do we hang on to? But also, can you see that however you answer what you hang on to, whether you answer you hang on to something, and whatever that is, or no, I don't hang on to anything, either way still misses it. That's a subtle perspective. Whether you hang on to it or don't hang on to it, that's part of this 
koan. This is picking and choosing. This is clarity. This old fellow does not abide within clarity. Do you abide within clarity? Are you on a clarity hunt? The, the hunt for red samadhi? <laughs> I'm sure you get the reference. <laughs> Have you ever had a period of zazen where you became still and quiet and vast? Or perhaps our mind just quieted down a bit? Maybe you didn't realize it until you got up and things were quieter. And we could appreciate this. We could hold, up, hold it up as something accomplished. Damn, that was a good period of Zazen. Put that on my wall. At that time, a certain student asked, since you don't abide within clarity, what do you hang on to? And what's the student asking? There's a subtlety there. What is he actually asking? Since you don't abide within clarity, what do you hang on to? Is it not abiding within clarity, a kind of abiding? Well, if you don't abide within clarity, you're not abiding within clarity. That's abiding. Do you see that? That's a place to be. And the, the practitioner has a point. So in the preface, which I already read a good part of, I'll, I'll read it again. The universe, I didn't read this part, it's too narrow. The sun, moon, stars are all at once darkened. That's Mu. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. No color, sound, smell, taste, touch. Everything is darkened. That's the absolute basis of reality. Yet, even if blood flows from the stick fall like raindrops, and the katz shouts like thunder, that's traditional shout of realization, you're still far short of the truth of Buddhism. Even seeing into Mu, even in deep realization of Shikantaza, still there's a problem. Even in a drop of samadhi, in the quieting of the mind, still there's a problem. What's the problem? Even the Buddhas of the three worlds can only nod to themselves, and the ancestors of all ages do not exhaustively demonstrate its profundity. The whole treasure of sutras is inadequate to expound its meaning. Even the clearest eye practitioners fail to save themselves. Do you realize how much trouble you're in? You're not going to get this. You are not going to get something from your practice, from realization, from zazen. It's got nothing to offer you. The whole treasury of sutras is inadequate to expound its deep meaning. Even the clearest-eyed practitioners fail to save themselves. At this point, how do you conduct yourself? And he goes on, mentioning the name of the Buddha is like trudging through the mire. To utter the word Zen is to cover your face with shame. Not only those who have long practiced Zen, but beginners too should exert themselves to attain directly to attain directly to the secret. None of this crap about Zen and Buddha and enlightenment. Directly. Well, what does that mean? It means be the breath. Directly. Nothing between you and the breath. (laughs) Pardon me. What part of being the breath do you not understand? (laughs) And I apologize for that kind of encouragement of discouragement. 
but there's no need to screw it up. It's really, really simple. Just come back to the breath. Be the breath, and when you're not the breath, come back to the breath. And don't judge whether you are the breath of being the breath or not being the breath. Just invest in the breath. Just invest in this moment of being in Shikantas. Just invest in Mu. It's so far simpler than what we load on to this poor practice. Because in order to do that, you have to open your hand. You have to open your heart. You have to let go of the layers of compounded shit that we've immersed ourselves in for lifetimes. Be willing to let go of it. You don't actually have to let go of it. You have to be willing to let go of it. So you let go of it each time it comes up. It will come up for the rest of your life. Just let it go. Don't dwell there. Stop hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. So Chacho replied, I don't know either. Clarity, picking and choosing. Master Hakwan, 16th century, 17th century, great master, Japanese master, who redid these koans and ordered them and set up a, a wonderful way of doing koan practice. He said about this koan, discriminations like delusion, enlightenment, sentient beings are wrong. Isn't that interesting? We talk about that all the time, many different words. If you abide in clarity, you need to preserve it. But if you don't remain in clarity, there's nothing to preserve, is there? There's nothing to preserve. That's the freedom. The student said, since you don't know, teacher, why do you nevertheless say that you do not abide within clarity? Chacho said, it's enough to ask about the matter. Bow and withdraw. There's nothing really wrong with this student's question. There is a point at which this discussion begins to fall into debate. Question, answer, question, answer. And begins to get lost from the essential point. And Chacho decided there's really nothing to do, except put an end to it, set a limit on. And that's an interesting perspective. There can be a challenge at some point to us as we begin to realize we can't get there by endlessly asking more questions. Maybe we feel obliged that we need to have a question when we go into Dyson or need to have a question to bring up and explore. You don't. It's okay if you do, but you don't. I mean, there'll always be another question we can ask. Always. And usually teachers are unfailingly responsive to the questions of practitioners, and they should be. I mean, we certainly need to trust the process, trust ourselves, trust the teacher, trust the relationship. Uh, really talk about trusting ourselves to exhaustively be sure because such an enormous commitment is being asked of us, by us, to relinquish our holy treasure of our self, clenched in a tight heart. It's a big deal to begin to let that go, to let some light in. Because usually we've been pretty battered by life, or seen a lot of battering, or both. So we have a hard wall around us. It has our name on it. And so it makes sense to ask a lot of questions and to discern as much as we can the path before we take another step. And so we can linger there and ask question after question after question after question after question. Yet at the same time, the questions can be a way to protect us from the fundamental practice, of challenge of the practice, which is to see ourselves, to see deeply into ourselves, to not be satisfied with what we know about ourselves. We know a lot about ourselves. We got it 
pretty figured out. You turn this dial here, and you get this response over here, and you press this button, and the, the dial goes like this. I got it. And when the dial goes like that, I turn it. You know, you got it. You know. A little more music, another couple of puffs, uh, whatever it is. Fill in the blanks. Hey. <laughs> Never mind. So we have to, on one hand, build trust in our journey and allow us to use our intellect and personal tendencies to bring forth what needs to be brought forth as we take the chance and risks of letting go. It's not a small thing, and it's a process for each of us. And it's a process that has a continuing journey to it. It's not a one-time thing, because as we go deeper into this practice and deeper into ourself, what we're getting at becomes more and more pre- precious to ourself. What's between us and real freedom is that nub of ourself, that core of our, of our personality. And when we begin to, to look closely at that, it scares the hell out of us. But there does come a time when we can begin to see our our pattern of asking questions, maybe to prove a point, or to sustain our place, or to project an image, or to do really anything other than sit with ourselves. And that sitting with ourself means to accept who we are just as we are sometimes confused, sometimes caught, sometimes clear. All of the above. Sometimes in pain. Sometimes it's as good as that first bite of pizza after session. Or the real Jewish bagels you're going to get for breakfast tomorrow. Just relating to things that we might relate to. So Churchill says, it's enough to ask about the matter, bow and withdraw. So there's a couple of things going on here in this response, and it's subtle. So some of it is enough already. You've asked your questions. Do you have anything else but questions to hold up your boat? So this is a common sequence, and the person has to address the, has to exhaust their questions. There's nothing else to do. You can't push that away. The teacher can't push it away. They have to exhaust their questions. So anything other than questions? Now go back to your seat and take your questions with you. And, and consider what would happen if he went back to his seat or she went back to her seat. And worked with, since you don't abide with in clarity, what do you hang on to? In other words investigating that not standing in clarity, is that a kind of abiding or not? What's the implication for me? What would it mean to not abide any place? Not abiding in clarity, not abiding in confusion or delusion, not abiding in picking and choosing. Where would that place be? What would happen if you questioned that? Well, we do question that. That's move. That's our breath. That's the intimacy of this practice. That's this moment, truly, with nothing added. Plain this moment. No seasoning, no accoutrements. Just this as it is. Just you as you are. Me as I am. But I'm confused and I have another question. Yes, we know. Yeah. We know. 
there's other perspectives. It's enough to ask about the matter. Where does that come from when Chacha says that? That's a relative perspective. It's enough to ask about them. We're asking questions. It's very relative, right? It's in the relative world of suffering. Now bow and withdraw. Where is that coming from? That's not relative. Can you see that? Bow and withdraw. Go back to your seat and sit. There's nothing left out of that. Zen Master Dawi had a disciple named Tsang. Once on hearing the Master's talk, she had a deep realization. And as was the custom in that time, and still happens in koan training. She wrote a poem, which she presented to confirm her realization. This still happens. Suddenly, I came across my nose, and all my cleverness vanished. Why should Bodhidharma have come come from India? The second ancestor needlessly bowed. If you keep asking me how and so what, the whole bunch of you bandits are busted. Just some reference. Bodhidharma is the founder of Zen, came from India to China, brought Zen, so to speak. The second ancestor, Weku, needlessly bowed. He bowed to his teacher who brought him to awakening. It's the famous uh, ancestor with one arm standing outside the cave in the snow. As the snow piles up, Bodhidharma says, what do you want? What are you doing out there? He says, I came to realize myself. And it goes on from that's koan. If you keep asking how and so what, the whole bunch of you bandits are busted. I love that poem. <laughs> the verse. The supreme way has no difficulty. The words are straight. The speech is straight. One has many kinds. Two has no duality. At the horizon, the sun rises and the moon sets. Before the balustrade, the mountains deepen and the water chills. When consciousness ends in the skull, how can joy exist? The dragon howl in the withered tree has not yet evaporated. Difficult, difficult discrimination or clarity. You see yourself. Getting on in time, but this beautiful poem I think is worth looking at briefly. The supreme way has no difficulty. Those are the words. No difficulties. The speech is straight. The words are straight. One has many kinds. Two has... No duality. This is the freedom of practice. In one there are many. In many there are one. We chant that in the identity of relative and absolute. Relative and absolute. One whole body. Your body. In one there are many. In two, no duality. But can you see this for yourself? At the horizon, the sun rises and the moon sets, just as it is, just as it is. Beyond the balustrade, the mountains deepen and the water chills. The balustrade is the, it's a balcony, you've seen it. It's got pillars and a railing. Beyond the balustrade, beyond the block of you, past yourself, but not excluding yourself, but before you, in you, the mountains deepen and the water chills. 
just as it is. When consciousness ends in the skull, this is talking about discriminatory consciousness, picking and choosing, how can joy exist? Life and death, joy and sadness, they're a whole thing. It doesn't exist by itself. You want happiness? Will you buy sadness too? If you want life, will you take death? The dragon howl in the withered tree has not evaporated. The dragon howl is the enlightened being. The dragon is the enlightened being. The howl is the howl of pure thusness, as it isness, compassion, love. It's what dragons have. It's what this, this is called the dragon hall the hall of awakening. The withered tree, the dragon howl is alive. It's in, the, it's in the world. It's in the environmental strike that's coming. It's in walking down the street. The withered tree, the absolute, it's moo. It holds everything. The dragon howl in the withered tree is not evaporated. It can't. It can't evaporate. Difficult, difficult discrimination of clarity. You have to see it for yourself. You really do have to see it for yourself. I hope you will. I hope you will practice. Use the rest of this day and tomorrow and the next day of your life to see this. The world needs us. Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash jizoproject. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.